Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, March 12th, 2018. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop. Open up your Bible. Turn it on. Open it up. doesn't matter if it's analog or digital. What we're trying to get you to do here is open up your Bible to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that is teaching, that is put forward for consumption by Christians, by evangelical leaders, is not biblical. In fact, many times it's not even close. Sometimes, although rarer and rarer nowadays, they make an effort to actually make it look like they're teaching something from Scripture and then they end up twisting it. Uh, but over and again, uh, the, the, this, the rule of the day in the great apostasy is scratch itching ears, tell people what they want to hear, make stuff up, and nobody's going to challenge you. And the person who does the challenging will be accused of being a Pharisee. Yeah, that's, they play the Pharisee card. Yeah, Pharisees, by the way, were heretics. They were not orthodox. I'm going to have to get more resources out on that. Anyway, so I uh, hope you had a good weekend. I had a good weekend myself. Pretty restful day yesterday. And um, <laughs> you know, looking at the uh, <clears throat> the menu of heresy that is before me, I've decided upon a uh, <laughs> little bit less crazy feast, if you would. Uh, you're going to note that uh, today's episode of Fighting for the Faith will not have as, well, as many people who are out there on the lunatic fringe. We cover the whole spectrum. Uh, you know, today's group will be markedly less charismatic, although they, many of them, if not all of them, claim to actually hear from God. But uh, that won't be the emphasis today. We're going to try to key in on how biblical texts are used, are used or not used. 
and um, see if we can <clears throat> pull off the theme today. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to start with the David Crank update. The name of the sermon is Water Walker, and this is a standard twisting of the Gospel of Matthew uh, with Jesus walking on the water and then ultimately Peter getting out of the boat and walking on water. And th- this twist is made possible by believing that the Bible is about you, Yeah, that the Bible is somehow a collection of stories of people who've fulfilled their dream destiny or their purpose for their life, and that uh, and that you need to learn the lessons they did about risk-taking and, and things like that. And so uh, the story in Matthew 14 is about you stepping out of the boat and walking on the water, and we're going to demonstrate from the biblical text, that ain't what this text is about, like not even close. Yep, no, not at all. Then we're going to do a purpose-driven update. And uh, with the purpose-driven update, uh, we're going to be listening to Rick Warren, and he's going to really badly twist Scripture here. In fact, um, the name of the sermon that we're going to listen to a portion of is is called Choosing Values That Will Give You the Future You Want. Choosing Values That Will Give You the Future That You Want. And uh, they even came up with a hashtag there at uh, Saddleback, Choose Your Future. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to note how Rick Warren manipulates the biblical text to make it appear like, uh, well, you could miss your purpose if you don't obey God. And what's fascinating is, is that this particular Bible twisting is very similar to and in the same genre of Bible twisting and almost the identical same Bible twisting that uh, you will see from prosperity preachers using the book of Deuteronomy and the blessings and curses of the Mosaic Covenant and somehow misapplying them. Now, the Word of Faith prosperity heretics take the blessing and curses of the Mosaic Covenant, which we're not under. It's been fulfilled. Uh, Christ already fulfilled it. And the Mosaic Covenant has given way to the New Covenant. But they take the blessing and cursing portion of the Mosaic Covenant in the book of Deuteronomy and talk about prosperity. Well, Rick is going to not make it about prosperity. He's going to make it about purpose. So we'll look at how he twists up the scripture there. Uh, Somewhere in there, we're probably going to have to take a break. And uh, then second half of the first hour, we're going to do a uh, Joel and Victoria Osteen twin spin. And we're going to listen in part to a sermon by Victoria Osteen and the sermon delivered by Joel Osteen, both on the same days. They both deliver sermons, if you can call them that, uh, at uh, Lakewood. And so that's what we will listen to for hour number one. Hour number two, we're going to head to Higher Vision Church, and we're going to listen to Jared Ming and his sermon titled, Wake Up, which is supposedly uh, from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, the story of the raising of Lazarus. And we're going to note how Jared Ming in this sermon totally, I mean, guts John 11 of its actual meaning of Christ is the resurrection and the life, and how all who believe in him, they will be raised up on the last day. That's kind of the whole point of what's going on with the raising of Lazarus. And and he's going to turn it into some kind of admonition that it's time for the current generation to wake up. And the reason why is, well, because it's time, which has nothing to do with John chapter 11. So 
grab a Bible, some popcorn, a helmet, you know, things like that. Uh, let's go ahead and get into the program. And uh, for this installment of, uh, of a David Crank update, let's go ahead and use this update music. Oh, it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with, with a flair. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flare. That's right. It doesn't matter what I say or what I do, as long as I do it with a flare. So we're heading over to Faith Church St. Louis, and we're going to be listening to a portion of the sermon titled Water Walker by David Crank. Let's go ahead and let him set up the uh, the, the this portion of the message, and we're going to go into the biblical text. So you need your Bible for sure. With this episode of Fighting for the Faith, uh, we're going to spend a lot of time in the Bible at just comparing and contrasting specifically, hardcore, if you would, uh, what these people are saying. So let's check in with David Crank. Here we go. Well, give it up for Jesus. He's the one, right? How many of y'all glad you're on your way to heaven? How many of y'all glad that the person next to you wore deodorant? Come on, raise your hand if that's you. Uh, I want to talk to you today about some things that are in my personal life. Uh, just stories and so on that's going to help you get from where you are. And I have a couple questions. One, do you feel like that there's like sometimes like a, a ceiling over you that you should be further along, that, that things should have happened by now? Anybody got that feeling sometimes? I think we all experience that. And so today I want to talk about getting out of the boat. You know, uh, years ago over in Fenton, in fact, I was just talking to some of the people around that I've, I've seen at our church forever. In Fenton, we had a little bitty boat, about 180 people. And uh, in fact, I took a picture off offline. Of, uh, online about uh, kind of what the size of the boat looked like. It was kind of like me and Nicole were in this little boat. Um, now, the issue is oftentimes when you're in a small boat in a small environment and nobody's really done anything really big in your life, then you're always held back. Like you want to get out of the boat. You're in the boat, but your whole family's in the boat. And you're like, I want to get out. But then you got people holding you back. Like nobody in our trailer park has ever done this before. Come on. Who are you right now? Okay. Now, by the way, the edit that you heard. That was their edit from their YouTube channel, not me editing the message. And so he's basically taking the metaphor of getting out of the boat as doing something important in life or your, your dream, your destiny, somehow doing something important. And, and there are people who are going to try to hold you back and keep you from getting out of the boat. I mean, that's how he's talking. And, you know, the text he's going to be using is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. And let's go ahead and take a look at it. Matthew chapter 14. Now, the, beginning, the story begins in verse 22. But what we're going to end up doing in this is note that the context, and this will be important later in the program, that the context is the feeding of the 5,000. Feeding of the 5,000, uh, where Jesus takes a little bit, you know, takes a, you know, some kid's lunch and blesses it, multiplies it, and feeds 5,000. That miracle along with the uh, the resurrection of the grave all those are the only two miracles that uh in scripture in the new testament that appear in all four gospels and it's an important uh quite an important miracle with the feeding of the 5000 because we learn from John chapter 6 that they immediately recognized Jesus for who he is as the son of David and they wanted to make him king and uh, the reason being is is that the typological significance was quite 
evident. I mean, really overt and really easy to spot. There's the children of Israel, people who are descendants of the children of Israel, out in the wilderness in a grassy, desolate place, and they are miraculously fed by God in the wilderness. And they immediately go, whoa, that's the Messiah right there. And uh, and so that's an important bit of information. Now, we learn from the Gospel of John that Jesus sent the disciples out ahead of him and that he would he stayed in a you know a desolate place to pray and then he decided to catch up with them in the third watch of the night uh, by walking on the water and that while they were while the disciples were trying to cross uh, the sea of Galilee you know the wind was against them and it was pretty much a stormy type of night so that's that's your setup here Matthew chapter 14 verse 22 then reads immediately Jesus made the disciples get into a boat, go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain to pray uh, to, by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, so the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, "'It is a ghost.'" And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So, a little bit of historical note here. And uh, the old fisherman's tale on the Sea of Galilee was that uh, a lot of people have lost their lives on the Sea of Galilee uh, fishing. And the the way the story went is that... uh, if you saw a ghost, that was the last guy to die. And if you were the one who saw him, you're you're going to be the one, you're the next to die. That's kind of the idea. So they were totally afraid. And Jesus says, take heart. And then he actually says this in the Greek, ego me. Ego me. And you'll note this from the Gospel of John. That is the word I am or the phrase I am. And by Jesus saying it in that way, he's actually saying he's God. That's it's, This is why you need a good exegete to kind of dig this out of the text. And so he says, do not be afraid. So Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. Note, Peter is not doing this because he's stepping out in faith. He is literally saying, if that's you, Lord, and he's saying this out of disbelief, prove it to me. Prove it to me by have me coming out to you on the water. So Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And see, Peter... This isn't a great act of faith. It was a great act of doubt. And he ended up sinking as a result of it and having to be saved by Christ. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat, listen to this. Here's the punchline of the story then, verse 33. Those in the boat, they worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. You see, this was a sign to them that he was none other than the Son of God, and it resulted in them worshiping Jesus. That's the point of this miracle. And over and again, when you read the scriptures as if they are about you, 
you're going to miss the point. This isn't a story of how Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, did this by faith. You got to step out of the boat and walk on the water too. Because notice there's 12 disciples. How many of them walked on the water? One. None of them are told they need to get out of the boat too. It's not like that at this point they engaged in water walking practice so that all of the other disciples can learn how to do this bit. That's not it at all. Peter did this because of his doubts, not because of his faith. He ended up sinking. He had to be saved by Christ. He was mildly rebuked for Jesus for doubting and not having faith. The result of all of this then was really the glorification of Christ and the guys, the the 12 disciples, confessing that he's the Son of God and worshiping him. That's the point. So, knowing all of that, then we can return to David Crank, who somehow is saying that we as Christians, we all got to be stepping out of the boat and walking on the water, and those people in the trailer park you grew up in are telling you, we ain't never done something like that, you get back in the boat. That ain't the point of this text at all. So, your past doesn't determine your future. So you have to have a God-sized dream and understand that you serve a big God. And this- You have to have a God-sized dream and understand that you serve a big God. Nowhere does it say that in Matthew chapter 14. In fact, you're going to look long and hard in all of Scripture, but you will not find a passage of Scripture that says you have to have a God-sized dream. No text says that. So now what he's added into the mix is a man-made doctrine, which Jesus strictly forbids and has, well, he's rebuked that in the form of the Pharisees. It's kind of ironic. You point this out that, hey, he's twisting Scripture here and putting a command and, you know, saying stuff the Bible doesn't say. that Somebody might accuse you of being a Pharisee, but in the truest sense— What David Crank is doing here is he is being pharisaical by adding to the scriptures and teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. It is a command of man, not God, that you have to have a God-sized dream. No scripture says it. God has started something in you, and he wants to finish it, but of course there's something that we have to do. And then there's setbacks and, and, and things along the way that can keep you back. And oftentimes, though, it's in our mind. As a man thinketh, so is he. Um, I, I had an opportunity, uh, I think they have a picture of Tyler Perry up here, uh, asked last week to have dinner with Tyler Perry in Atlanta. And, and, and Tyler, he, he, we had lunch with, or dinner with him the other evening. And it's so interesting to see a person who was homeless, who his dad actually beat his mom, hearing those stories of how here he is encapsulated in pain. But while he was in this troubled time, hearing his mom get beat in his mind, he would close his mind and he, his eyes and he would pretend that he was somewhere else. This, of course, created a vivid imagination that now makes him billions of dollars. Somebody ought to say amen. In other words, God takes your brokenness and then he turns it around for your good. So everything you've went through in this breaking process was all for this critical moment to say, I know that God has something big in my life. I'm going to step out of the boat and I'm going to obey God. But there are storms. In fact, we yet nowhere in scripture are you told to step out of the boat and obey God by doing so. No, there is no biblical text that says that anywhere. Again, these are man-made doctrines and a man-made emphasis 
uh, man-focused emphasis on Scripture, which means you're going to miss the whole point of what the biblical text is about. Go there in Matthew 14, verse 24. It says, Meanwhile, while the boat was out to sea, when the wind came against them and battered them with the waves, about four o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. How many of y'all know that's always kind of scary? You're out on the lake and some dude starts walking on the water. How many of y'all know that somebody's been drinking too much or something? They were scared out of their wits, said it's a ghost, and they cried out with terror. But Jesus, everybody shout, but Jesus. Shout it loud. Come on, class. Why? But Jesus was quick to comfort them with courage. He said, don't be afraid. Do you know that fear is what keeps you from stepping out of the boat? Fear, false evidence appearing real. Uh, yeah, again, nowhere are we told to step out of the boat. Jesus said, don't be afraid. And Peter Lee suddenly and boldly said, Master, if it's really you, call me to come out of the water. And he said, come. And- Notice, if it's really you. He doesn't believe it's Jesus. All of a sudden, Peter jumping out of the boat. It doesn't say that he said, well, I, I don't know. Is it really you? Uh, no, no. The message says jumping out of the boat as if somehow he was springing. Uh, the message is not a biblical uh, translation. It is a paraphrase and a very poor one at that. So uh, let me uh, read again um, You know, from the biblical text from a good translation like the ESV. Um, Matthew fourteen twenty eight. Peter answered, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. It doesn't say jumping in, uh, in the uh, Greek at all. No, that's not what it means at all. So the message has added something to the text. And David Crank here, by preaching from the message paraphrase, He's trying to exegete, exegete the message. You can't do it. It's, it's, not a, it's not a faithful translation at all. This is what a lot of people do. They're like, I, I don't know. I don't know. No, I don't know. See, you'll never have a big life thinking, I don't know. So, it says that Peter... Nowhere in Scripture are we ta- told that it's, Christianity is about having a big life. Notice the narcissistic emphasis. It's the only one who actually walked on water. Because everybody could have walked on water, but Peter's the one that took him at his word. And he said, God, do you want a bigger life for me? I know there's waves right now. I know there's winds right now. But if it's you, bid me to come. And it says he just jumped out and he started walking on the water. You know, sometimes in life, you will never find out what you're really made out of until those moments of terror, those moments of fear, like the coach this week in South Florida. Again, the whole punchline of walking on the water of that story is they ended up worshiping Jesus. Like those heroes who stood, the security guard, stood in front of someone else's life. You really don't know what you are until that moment. We watch movies about heroes, but these are real live heroes that jumped out of a boat. Somebody ought to give them some honor here today. And you walk on water. Everybody shout, I'm a water walker. No, you're not. And we're not called to be a water walker. This is a total twisting of the biblical text. I think you get the point. Now, let's go ahead and get into our purpose-driven update on this side of the break so that uh, I don't run out of time with the other segments that I want to uh, cover today. So uh, let's do this. I don't know how I know, but I'm going to find my purpose. I don't know where I'm going to look. But I'm gonna find my purpose Gotta find out Don't wanna wait Got to make sure that my life 
life will be great. Gotta find my purpose before it's too late. All right, so we're heading over to Saddleback Church, and we're going to be listening to a portion of a message delivered by Rick Warren named, titled, Choosing Values That Will Give You the Future You Want. And we're going to note that Rick Warren is a master manipulator and twister of God's Word, and he has been for a long time. In fact, uh, we've been reviewing Rick Warren's sermons and botched Bible teachings for more than a decade, almost a, you know, well, actually, I've been doing it for more than a decade, starting in writing on my Extreme Theology blog, and then ultimately here at, uh, at Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Media. So I've been, uh, noting and warning people that Rick Warren is a twister of God's word. He is not a sound exegete. He is a guy who deceives and misleads people. And this is just the latest example of it. Here we go. Well, again, I want to say hi to everybody this weekend at all the different campuses. I'm so glad you're here. We're beginning a new series. If you'll take out your message notes inside your program, if you're watching online, you can download these notes. And we're starting a new series I'm calling Choosing Your Future. Choosing Your Future. What? A lot of people have a big misunderstanding about God. And what they misunderstand is this. They think, okay, the Bible says that God planned me before he planned the earth. That's true. That God had a purpose for my life before he even created the universe. That's true. And so a lot of people think, well, since God has a plan and a purpose for my life, uh, and he planned it long before I was born, billions of years before I was born, then um, it must be all preset. Uh, It must be all predestined. It's all pre-planned, so uh, there's no choice in it for me. And the Bible teaches the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. So we're going to need some uh, verses in context where the Bible teaches that, you know, okay, so God pre-planned your purpose and destiny thingy, and but it, you know, it, it's it's not up to God, you know, to to make it happen. It's it's up to you. Yeah, I get the feeling we're going to need to uh, <clears throat> revisit the uh, lecture I gave last year named God Did Not Create You for a Purpose. Uh, yeah, it's, it's quite controversial, but I think quite necessary. Yes, God has a plan and a purpose for your life, but you can miss it. Oh, no. I can miss my whole purpose. Gasp! Who knew? Oh, I didn't know at all. Yeah, see, I've probably already missed it myself because... I've never learned how to hear the whispers of God so that he can tell me the sweet nothings about my purpose inside of my inner heart and ear and stuff. It is not automatic, friends. Most people are missing the purpose of their life. Oh, no. We're missing. We're, oh, gasp. The whole, there's a bunch of people out there wandering around in purposelessness, although they're Christians. Because notice he's pre- supposedly preaching to Christians. God is not going to force himself on you. God is not going to force you to enjoy the plan he created you for. Most people, frankly, waste their lives. They waste their lives. They don't understand that this plan and purpose has to be chosen. Oh, no. Who knew? Has to be accepted. Has to be followed. You have to ask your purpose into your heart, I think, is what you have to do. We will... (laughs) Pause right there. It's uh, we're up on our first break, and we'll come back to Rick Warren in this bizarre 
message of his. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. When we come back, more Rick Warren and then Victoria and Joel Osteen. Stay tuned, don't want to miss them. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Presents Church Day Select. Captain, an enemy vessel off the starboard bow. What colors are they flying? They're flying the code orange flag. It's the SSF Audacity. This is our chance, men. This egregious foe has been plaguing the seas for long enough. Two arms! Man the battle stations and hoist the colors. Aye, aye, sir. Man the battle stations and hoist the colors. We mustn't let them get the better of us. Call it the praise band drummer and man battle station. Aye, aye, sir. You heard the man. Get to work. Come on, let's Captain, sir, they're turning to meet us. With this clear weather, we couldn't have had the element of surprise. Well, no matter. We have the wind on our side and our men are ready. We should be pulling up alongside them any minute now. Give me a status report! Sir, the enemy ship has us outgunned by at least three to one. The gunner's mates are reporting that we're running low on gunpowder and half the crew is suffering from Montezuma's revenge. Never fear, my good man, for it says that with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. If you say so, Captain Furtick. They're now within firing range, Captain. Mr. Smithers, send them a... Hang on, let me do this myself. Send them a warning shot off of their port bow. Fire cannons, I sir! That was merely a warning shot, Captain. They could have very well have hit us. I think they wished for us to surrender to avoid bloodshed. Nonsense! 
You think we would surrender in an hour of triumph? God has clearly stated that no weapon formed against you will prosper. We can't lose. Let loose the cannons. But but we're not within silence. If I wanted your opinion, I'd have given it to you. I say, fire! I've never seen a warning shot where they used all their cannons before. The blasted fool shot before he was in range. I can only assume that he means to not surrender. Quickly fire a barrage into the port side while they reload. Aye, aye, sir. Fire the cannons! Ha! You call that an attack? I have God on my side. He said this to me, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. Why, why aren't we firing our cannons? We've now lost half our cannons due to the last attack. Come on, men. We can't lose. Aye, aye, sir. Are they even trying anymore? By all accounts, I believe they are. Let's pull up alongside and see if we can't reason with them. It would be bad form to slaughter them without mercy. Hello, over there! Go away! We have nothing to say to you! I wanted to negotiate the terms of your surrender. My surrender? It is you who will be surrendering to us. What on earth is he talking about, Captain? Maybe he's suffering from malnutrition and heat stroke? No, I, I think he's serious. Now look here. You're outgunned with no way of winning. We wish to show you mercy. No weapon formed against us will prosper. Why is he quoting the Bible? No, a quote would require a context. What he's done is called proof texting. Enough talk, men. Ready? Aim. What was that? I couldn't hear you over the sound of your mass being demolished. But, but, uh, no! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Oh, would you look at that? Your rudder is gone, too. <clears throat> It'll be a little difficult for you to sail without it, don't you think? I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Is it me? Or is your ship now sinking? Nah, maybe it is me. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If it's all the same to you, I think we've lost this fight. I surrender. Geronimo! Satan with you. I can't take another minute with this lunatic. Stop it! Stop it right now! All of you come back. We, we, we can't lose. We have... God on our side. We shall prevail. We will. Well, that was surprisingly easy. Makes me wonder how they were even viewed as a threat in the first place. Most inept sailors to ever sail the seven seas.
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box? No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Warning, uh, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that Jesus doesn't want you, wa- want you walking on water. The reason for that is because nowhere are we told to do that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew, the other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to 
Fighting for the Faith, send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And if you want to become a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. Again, support Fighting for the Faith so that we can continue to do and expand uh, the offering of uh, serving the body of Christ by teaching him sound biblical discernment and theology. Um, all right, so uh, let's get back to what we were doing uh, before the break. We were listening to uh, Rick Warren, and Rick Warren yeah, uh, laying a heavy burden on people about, oh, yeah, you know, God, he, he pre-planned this whole purpose thingy for you before the foundations of the world, but, uh, you know, uh, so you, you, you all are missing it. Yeah, you, you're... You're just to- you could pos- possibly be missing it because it just doesn't happen automatically. You got to make it happen. And how do I make it happen? And what biblical text tells me it's up to me to make my purpose happen? Now, repeatedly, the Bible tells us that God will not force you to do his will. He gives you the choice to accept or reject his will. He gives you the choice to obey or disobey his directions. He gives obey or disobey. That has to do with not directions, commandments. And disobeying God's will, disobeying God's commandments is a sin. So are you saying it's a sin if I don't learn what my purpose is and then fulfill it? That's the that's the little literal logical conclusion of what it is that he's saying the choice to follow or ignore the purpose that you were created for. And most people honestly miss the purpose of their life because of their poor choices. Poor choices. Yeah, you're saying they're disobeying God's commands. That would mean because of their sin. When Moses led the Jews out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery, um, And he led them out into the desert and he said, we're going to a land that God has promised to us. And it's going to be an incredible land. It's going to be a land of milk and honey, a land of great bountiful blessing. And it's going to be a whole lot different than uh, the years you lived in slavery. And this is, of course, a picture of salvation coming out of slavery to myself, to sin, to guilt, to fear. Now, note, he recognizes that typologically... Being set free from slavery is a picture of salvation. That is absolutely correct. What he just said there is 100% true. That when you look at the story of the Exodus, the children of Israel being set free from slavery to a false god king, a tyrannical false god king, and then, you know, all the plagues and then the, you know, them being baptized in the Red Sea, that this is a picture of salvation. This is most certainly true. The question that immediately needs to be answered is, when we look at Scripture, what does the promised land point to? What does the promised land point to? Now, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 11, because God's Word doesn't leave us guessing about these things. When we understand that the Old Testament is type and shadow, and that the New Testament reveals the substance, the question then comes up, What does the promised land in the Old Testament actually signify? Well, the answer is found in Hebrews chapter 11. Starting at verse 8, it says this, 
By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born the descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. Listen to verse 13. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised." But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, that they had not, that if they if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. In other words, Hebrews 11 makes it very clear that the land of promise is the new heavens, new earth, the heavenly Jerusalem come out of heaven and now being put on the earth, which will happen when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. So Hebrews 11 gives us the keys to unlocking this. But watch what Rick Warren does. He's literally going to make the promised land, your purpose, and it's not. Listen in. Judgment uh, to freedom in Christ. And the Bible says this is going to be called the promised land. Now, I'm going to back this up just a smidge so that we can hear him talk about this in context. And it's going to be a whole lot different than uh, the years you lived in slavery. And this is, of course, a picture of salvation coming out of Slavery to myself, to sin, to guilt, to fear, to judgment, uh, to freedom in Christ. And the Bible says this is going to be called the promised land. No. The promised land is a picture of our eternal existence. The land flowing with milk and honey, the new earth. Uh huh. Yeah, our eternal existence is the promised land, not our purpose here on earth. But he said, it's not automatic that you're going to get this. I've planned it for you. I've planned the promised land for you. And God has promised to have good things in your life. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper. Jeremiah 29, 11, out of context. You go read Jeremiah 29, 11. It is not a blanket promise to all Christians that they, you know, that God has a purpose for them. That's not the point of that at all. Read it in context. And by the way, the you there in the Hebrew is plural. I know the plans I have for y'all. And the y'all is not you and me. The y'all is those who are in, well, exile in Babylon. After 70 years, they will be, be able to go back to Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so God is giving them a specific comforting set of information so that they can hang on to his promises that uh, that this isn't it for them and that they will return as he promised the prophet Jeremiah after 70 years in exile. Mm-hmm. So Rick Warren now just took Jeremiah 29, 11 out of context. Not to harm you, plans to give you a future, a hope in the future. 
And he says, I, I, I've got good plans for your life, but you have to choose to follow me. That's why I'm going to do this. Yeah, so note, since he's the inventor of the purpose-driven doctrine, he now is the one who can kind of manipulate the scriptures to create the rules by which you will receive your purpose. But this isn't a biblical teaching. He's recalling choosing your future for the next several weeks. And before they went into the promised land, uh, God, through Moses, said this to the people. And he says the same thing to you. Notice there on your outline, the top verse, Deuteronomy chapter 30 says this. This Okay, now Deuteronomy chapter 30. When you look at it in context, which will require you to kind of take a look at the really the last big swath of teaching within the book of Deuteronomy, this is known as the blessing and curses portion of the Mosaic Covenant. And so God is basically saying, those of you who are under the Mosaic Covenant, you coming into the land of Israel, that, well, there's a choice you got to make. You're going to either follow the rules or you're not. And if you don't follow the rules of the Mosaic Covenant, then you will be cursed with the curses of the Mosaic Covenant. If you obey the obey the commandments of the Mosaic Covenant, which are the ground rules for staying in, in Israel uh, under God's theocracy, then you will be blessed with the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant. It's all based upon obedience. But Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 16 is not, it, and I mean this, there's no way to make it, make it so that that is talking about what is needed for you to be able to, well, have your purpose in life. That's what not what Deuteronomy 30 is about. Today, I'm giving you a choice. You can choose life and success, or you can choose death and disaster. I am commanding you, God is, and he says, I'm commanding you to do three things. Now, let me give you the fuller context. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. Listen to what, you can see what's going on here. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to Yahweh your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in that I command you today with all of your heart and with all of your soul, then Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes, have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. He's sitting there going, what is this talking about? You're going to know, this is not talking about you fulfilling your purpose. That's not the purpose of Deuteronomy 30. Fast forwarding then to verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it too, is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us to bring to bring it to us or that we may hear it and do it. Neither it is beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us to bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth. It's in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God that I command you today by loving Yahweh your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And Yahweh your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, 
but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall be, you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving Yahweh your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to them. Uh-huh. This isn't about... this. This God is not saying in Deuteronomy chapter 30, do these things and you will experience your purpose. God is saying, obey my commandments and you will live long in the land. Uh-huh. Man, this guy is slick and he's sick. To love the Lord your God, to live the way he has told you, and to obey his laws and teaching. Those are choices. You, you can choose to accept or reject. He says, now you're about to cross the Jordan River and take the land that he is giving you. If you obey him, you will live and you will become successful and powerful. That is a promise. It's not only a promise that God has given to other people, he gives it to you too. But he says, you've got to love me, you've got to... This is the blessing and cursing portion of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> the Mosaic Covenant is kaput. Christ has fulfilled it. What are you talking about? This, does, this is not a promise about me fulfilling my purpose. My uh, word, you've got to, to listen to me, you've got to follow me, live the way I've told you. So he says, if you do this, you'll be successful and powerful. As your pastor who loves you, this is what I want for you. I want you to succeed in life. I don't want you to fail. I want you to succeed as a woman, as a man. If you get married as a husband or a wife, if you have children as a parent, I want you to succeed as a professional. And he says, it's up to you. I give you this choice. Life and success, death or disaster. Are you going to love me? You're going to obey me? You're going to live the way I tell you to do? He says, and if you do these things, you'll be successful and powerful. But, verse 17, he says this. If you disobey and you refuse to listen to me, you, you just don't listen, and you're led away to worship other gods, in other words, you, you idolize things, you'll be destroyed. And you will not live long in that land across the Jordan. That you're about to occupy. In other words, right. Your purpose is not the promised land. This is so obvious. Why are the people there at Saddleback sitting there and slurping this up? I would say it's, well, because it's Rick Warren. You know, everybody, Rick Warren is an internationally known author and Christian pastor and stuff like that. He's changing the world. He is twisting God's word, and it's obvious. Lose the very thing that I planned for your life. He says, I'm now giving you the choice. I'm going to back that up just a smidge. Listen again. These things, you'll be destroyed. And you will not live long in that land across the Jordan that you're about to occupy. In other words, you'll lose the very thing that I planned for your life. No. Not living long in the land across the Jordan is not the same thing as not discovering your purpose. And isn't it fascinating? I mean, it is, 
he might believe that you're saved by grace through faith, but discovering your purpose and, and fulfilling it, that's all law. It's up to, there's no grace involved. This is just nonsense. No Christian has believed this stuff. This guy is a slick Bible twister, but he's really not that slick. In fact, he's kind of ham fisted. And I am surprised that so many Christians put up with Rick Warren and hold him up as a shiny example of the best that Christian preaching has to offer. And I mean, I have not yet heard him once, and I mean this, this is not hyperbole, rightly handle a biblical text and point people to Jesus Christ and him crucified for their sins and call them to repent and to be forgiven and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The purpose-driven doctrine that he is teaching, he made up. And he's now misapplying Deuteronomy 30 as if to say, God made a purpose for you before the foundations of the earth, but Deuteronomy 30 makes it clear it's, it's up to you to make it happen by being obedient. Deuteronomy 30 is not about that at all. Moving along. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be, all by myself, an uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy, fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. You know they walk a mile just to see me smile. Shiny teeth and me. All right, so uh, that's our Joel Osteen update music, and we're going to be doing a Joel and Victoria Osteen twin spin today. You're going to be hearing from both of them. And uh, this was recently delivered there at uh, at uh, Lakewood. And the name of the message by Joel Osteen is Blessed Out of Season. I have no idea what that means. But uh, we're going to listen to Victoria Osteen first and note that God's Word forbids women from doing what we're going to hear Victoria Osteen doing. Well, that... <laughs> A clear biblical text has never kept Joel and Victoria Osteen from doing anything they want to do. And, well, they're not really interested in rightly handling a biblical text. So from the same day, March 4th, 2018, preached at Lakewood, here's the first sermon delivered that day by Victoria Osteen. Here we go. You know, I'm reminded today that God always starts small. God takes the small and goes big. You know, God's got a way of doing things with seeds that multiply. And today I just want... Yeah, God's got a way of doing things with seeds. Okay. This is weird and kind of really abstract. Which biblical text are you using, Victoria? I want to remind every one of us, you may feel small. You may feel like you don't have enough. Are there maybe some small things in your life you don't know if you really can handle? But I want to tell you something. When you put those small things in the hands of Jesus, you know what? He can go from small to big. He can go from small to big. You see, God told the Israelites when they were going to possess the land in Deuteronomy, he says, I'm going to, I am going to uh, decrease your enemies so that you can increase. 
Yeah, so um, is the reason why God did that in order to teach us the principle of, you know, things starting small and then going big? Do you have a biblical text that explains it in that way? He said it like this. He says, little by little, I am going to decrease the enemies in the land so that you can increase and take possession of the entire promise in this land. You see, God started small and wanted them to go big. See, he wanted them to have the capacity to be able to handle what he was going to give them. He didn't want the land to overtake them. He wanted them to overtake the land. But he had to decrease the enemies small, slowly, so that they could increase. So that means that God was increasing them incrementally throughout their journey. And do you know that's what God wants to do to you to, for you today? Yeah. Um, do you have a biblical text that, God, that says that God wants to increase me incrementally? I'd like to see that text, and I'm not exactly sure what you're even talking about, lady. He wants to increase you. What you think is small and insignificant, God wants to go big with it. But you've got to learn to handle the small first. Many of you know the story in Matthew 4 in the Gospels when Jesus was preaching and teaching to the multitudes. They'd been with him all day long. He, he had healed the sick among them and he was just loving on them all day long. And the disciples came to He was just loving on them all day long. Okay. <laughs> what does that mean? Jesus. And they said, Jesus, the people haven't eaten all day and it's starting to uh, become evening and they need to leave and they need to go find food. Would you release them, Jesus, so that they can go to the villages and find the food? We don't have enough food to feed them. And Jesus said, it's not necessary for me to release the people. You feed them. They said, we don't have enough to feed them. We only have five loaves and two fish. It is not enough to feed the multitude. It's too small. I love the way Jesus said, you feed them. Now he'd been doing miracles all day. It wasn't going to be difficult for Jesus to just multiply the food. The disciples hadn't done any miracles, but yet he looked at them and said, you feed them. You see what they thought was small, what they thought they couldn't handle. See, they couldn't handle feeding this many people. Yeah, they didn't think that um, feeding that many people was a small thing. They actually thought that was, you know, a, a big thing because, you know, it was. Now, the text in question, if you were paying attention earlier, I, I referenced this, that it, we would need to pay attention to that uh, from Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to note what happens in the, uh, in the context in the cross-reference in John chapter 6. Matthew 14, verse 13, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from them uh, to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed Jesus on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to Jesus and said, this is a desolate place. The day is now over, send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away, you give them something to eat. 
They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the uh, women and children. Now, like I have noted, that particular miracle is recorded for us in all four Gospels. The only other miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels, literally, is the miracle of Jesus' resurrection from the grave. So when we take a look at what happens in the Gospel of John, we get the fuller picture of what this meant. This was not about the principle of God doing big things with small things or starting incrementally. That's not the point. You see, the scriptures are about Christ, this one included. And so what Victoria is doing here is twisting this text. So we're going to look at the Gospel of John, chapter 6. I'm going to start at verse 10 so that you can see how we're going to pick up where you know where the Matthean text ends off. So verse 10, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered it up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, notice this was a sign, they said, This indeed is the prophet, the one who has come into the world, and perceiving that they were about to come and take him away by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You get it? You see, this is not about you know, some principle in your life where God's gonna start small and incrementally make you amazing. No, this (laughs) this was a a miracle that literally revealed it was a sign to the people who were there and it revealed who he was that he was the messiah and they were ready to make him king by force that's the gist of really the the whole purpose of what the miracle was but victoria osteen thinks it's about you so let's keep listening with such a small thing he said bring it to me and you know the story he they brought it to jesus He broke it, he blessed it, and he gave it back to them so that they could feed the multitudes. You see, Jesus took that small and let them go big. He let them be a... No, you're totally missing the whole point. This was a sign that revealed who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. Blessing that day. He let what they had in their hands feed the multitude. I want you to know that God thinks the small is very important. That's not the point of the miracle. The point of the miracle is is Jesus, through that sign, revealing who he is. Oftentimes, we overlook the small because we want to go big. Oftentimes, we don't think we have to deal with the small because it's not going to make that much difference anyway. But I believe Jesus was telling us in this story, the small things matter. No, he wasn't. 
if that was what he was saying, Jesus would have said that. Again, the Gospel of John gives us the fuller understanding of that miracle and how it proved that Jesus is none other than the promised Messiah, the prophet whom Moses foretold would come, whom everybody is to listen to. Don't overlook the small things. You see, too often we think that the complaining doesn't really make a difference. We think because we're not treating our spouse right, it doesn't really matter. It's not what we're wanting to do anyway. Uh, The feeding of the 5,000 isn't about that at all. The lack of integrity, maybe leaving the office early, sneaking out. It's a- yeah, those are all breakings of different commandments. Uh-huh. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal are in play here. Okay, my boss isn't looking. See, those are small things that matter to God. They're sm- yeah, if you want to show how they matter to God, you're going to have to open up the Ten Commandments and other passages related to them. Small things. He's saying, how are you handling the small things? Observe the small things. Then too often we say we don't have enough. They don't, they don't match the dream. They don't match my desires. I- yeah, I don't have what, it doesn't match the dream that God gave me in my heart. What? I don't have the right education. I don't have the, uh, the proper finances. I don't have the resources. I didn't come from the right family. I can't do what I would like to do. That's small stuff too. See, all of this stuff is small. All of this stuff that you're preaching, lady, has nothing at all to do with Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. That's a story about Christ. It reveals who he is. All right, let's keep going here. We're going to switch it up just a little bit. Let's check in with Joel Osteen and uh, a portion of his sermon from that same day titled Blessed Out of Season. Here we go. I want to talk to you today about blessed out of season. There are times when you can feel you're on the verge of a new level. Things are falling into I can feel I'm on the verge of a new level. I can feel it now. I don't know what he's talking about, but okay. Place, you can sense it's your season. God's a- it's my season. I can sense it. Do I use my Jedi reflexes for this? Do I have to have a high midichlorian count in order to feel this? I'm confused. About to do something new. It's important to live with that expectancy and believe for good things. But what about the times when it's just the opposite? Things aren't going our way. Business is slow. The medical report's not good. It's been years and we still haven't met the right person. All the circumstances say we're stuck. Yeah, what happens when all the circumstances say you're stuck? The Bible talks about this? Just endure it. It's not our season. The good news is God specializes in doing things out of season. No. I thought the good news is that Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. By the way, gospel, the word gospel means good news. Uh huh. The gospel, the euangelion, the good news. See, the good news is not that God specializes in stuff when things are out of season. Nope. 
This good news is that Christ died for our sins, even while we were still sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. But see, that's not what he's preaching. And what he's preaching is not really the good news. He doesn't wait for the conditions to be perfect, for the circumstances to line up. Yeah, actually, that's technically true if you're talking about the biblical gospel, (laughs) which he's not. Uh, Romans chapter (laughs) 5. Listen to this. Talk about out of season. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God demonstrates or shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yeah, you see, out of season, for sure. Yeah, you see, he died for us when we were at our worst, not at our best. When we were our most ungodly and at war with God, that's when Jesus died for us. See, the good, the biblical gospel, the biblical good news? Yeah, man, talk about being blessed out of season. Yeah, indeed, when we were the, at our worst, that's when Jesus died for us. That, so, uh, what? Uh, well, what Joel Osteen is doing here is, isn't actually preaching the good news. Unfortunately, he's off on some weird prosperity heresy tangent, and uh, I don't think we're going to get around to a <clears throat> proper preaching of law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. For you to have the training, for the right people to believe in you, he does things unexpectedly, things that you didn't see coming. You didn't have the experience, but suddenly you were promoted. The report said you wouldn't get well, but suddenly your health turned around. What? Um, You're making promises for God that he hasn't made. God hasn't promised to give me a promotion at work. And by the way, I'm the captain of Pirate Christian Media, so I mean, I don't get to be promoted anymore. So, you know, I'm at the top of the heap, you know. Um, As far as the medical reports, God doesn't promise that suddenly things are going to turn around on a bad medical report for you. You may get a bad medical report and the doctor is telling you the truth. You're going to die. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to die. Just because Joel Osteen says you're going to have a sudden turnaround and a blessed and a blessing from God at a season doesn't mean that God promises to heal you. Like, not at all. You were told you couldn't have children, but against all odds, you conceived and now you have that baby. Oh, that is cruel. I mean, utterly cruel of him because there are women who are barren. And despite their best efforts, their prayers and their pleadings with God, They are still not going to bear children, and what he just did there is make a promise for them, to them, from God that he did not give them. Wow. What happened? God blessed you out of season. We've been taught to be faithful in the slow periods, to endure when things aren't going our way, and that's important. We have to pass the test, but sometimes we're being faithful without releasing our faith. We're enduring without expecting. We're waiting for the conditions to change, and then we'll get... Where am I told in Scripture that I have to release my faith? Which biblical text says that? Our hopes up. When I get through this slow season, when my child starts making better decisions, when I see more progress in my season, then I'll believe again. You don't have to wait until it's your season. God does things out of season. Not on a normal timetable, not in a traditional way. He'll do things that don't make sense, 
There's no explanation. It's just the goodness of God. When you look around, every circumstance may say, you're not in season. There's no sign of things getting better. No sign of your health improving. No sign of you being promoted. Maybe it's just the opposite. Things are going down. Thoughts will tell you, be discouraged. It's never going to change. The conditions are not favorable. Don't believe those lies. God is about to bless you out of season. He's about to do something you didn't see coming. He's going to surprise you with his favor. It's going to be bigger than you. How do you figure? Where does God say he's going to do that? You're making promises for God he is not required to keep because he hasn't made them. Thought better than you imagine, more rewarding than you've dreamed. Now don't complain because you're out of season. You're in prime position for God to show out in your life. In the scripture, Sarah gave birth to a son at 90 years of age. She'd already gone through the change of life, already passed the childbearing years. Her womb was closed up. No way to have a baby. It's too late. But God does things out of season. Yeah, here's the problem with that. And that is, is that God gave a specific promise to Abraham that his descendant through Sarah would, well, bless the entire world. So, yeah, you can't take the fact that Sarah conceived and turn that into a blanket promise that all women who are barren can somehow conceive. Again, this is cruel because it's making a promise for God that he has not made, and it's making it to people who literally experience agony and really bad, bad pain uh, of of spirit, of mind, and, and other things as a result of the fact that they're not able to conceive. What, what Joel Osteen is doing here is cruel. David was a teenager taking care of his father's sheep. He had no formal training, no military experience. He was a shepherd. Yet the prophet Samuel showed up at his house and anointed him the next king of Israel. Yeah, God's not going to be sh- sending a prophet to your house to anoint you the next king of anything. This is unbelievable. And you're going to note, we're not hearing any clear exegetical work through these biblical stories and how they relate to Christ or even what they really say. He's just giving a blanket description of some of the things that occurred in these stories and therefore gleaning from it. Therefore, God wants to bless you out of season too. That is nonsense. He was promoted out of season. Yeah, he didn't see, have the qual- that means you're going to get a promotion at work this year, too. No, it doesn't. Qualifications. When he didn't see it coming. It was boring out in the shepherd's fields. It was lonely. You don't know what God is up to. You don't know when he's about to show up and do something unusual. Yeah, you have no idea. And notice the vagary here. And it's, it's kind of an inferred promise. He's not explicitly saying that God is going to do that. But man, he's doing a lot to kind of increase your expectation uh, regarding that. But again, this is utterly cruel because he is making promises for God that God has not made and is not required to keep. It's just unbelievable. And of course, these people, they should know better um, because they have their Bibles there and all they would have to do is literally open up the Scriptures to see if that's really what the scriptures teach. But it doesn't teach that at all. 
but they prefer it that way because you know they they don't want to hear about law, gospel, sin, grace, repentance, forgiveness of sins, or anything like that. They prefer the people who twist God's word, make it void, tell them what they want to hear, rather than telling them the truth and what they need to hear. Very, very sad indeed. And by the way, he's breaking the commandment that says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He's he's engaging in blasphemy, teaching what God has not promised as if it's a promise from God, and using the pretense and pretext of Christ and the Christian church to make it appear like this is biblical and Christian doctrine when it's not. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash firechristian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at firechristian. Quick break when we come back. Uh, We're heading to Higher Vision Church. Listen to a twisting of John chapter 11. A bad one at that. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out!
number two, Fighting for the Faith. Lots of Bible twisting. And this is what it means to take God's name in vain. This is explicitly forbidden by the Ten Commandments. And yet it's so prevalent in so many churches that call themselves Christian. Alright, let's do the sermon review right. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Higher Vision Church. Jared Ming presiding. The name of the sermon is Wake Up! And it is a totally botched teaching of the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We'll We'll dissect it and unpack it as we go. There's no other thing I need to prepare you for except for just be sitting down, make yourself comfortable. Let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Jared Ming and uh, his botching of John chapter 11 titled Wake Up. Here we go. You're here tonight for our very first wake night. It's it's an awesome privilege and honor really to be with you tonight. It's been a long time since I've talked to young people. You know, young adults, high schoolers, junior high, I used to be a youth pastor back in the day and used to speak uh, at camps and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of an honor to be back here with you. And what I want to do tonight is I want to basically talk on the theme, wake up. Can you say that with me? Wake up. Now, I want to read a verse to you in the Bible. In fact, let's just do this. We do this on Sundays. Would you stand one more time? I should have just had you stay standing. I want to read a verse in John, and this is a passage where... Literally, Jesus said that someone needed to wake up. And we're going to talk about what that means. Yeah, that's because that person was dead. Now, before he botches the text, let's take a look at it first and see if we can figure out what's going on. John chapter 11, we'll start at verse 1. Here's what it says, uh, using the ESV, which is a good translation, uh, not the only one that's good, but it is a good translation. It says this, Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And by falling asleep, he means he's died. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. 
Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Didn't know what was going on there. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, She went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. And he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And i got to tell you, the, the English here is not even coming close to getting what's going on in the Greek. And the greatly troubled almost makes it sound like Jesus is angry. You just keep that in mind. So we're going to have to ask the question, who's he ma- angry at? The answer is he's not angry at Martha or Mary or anybody per se. It's something else, but we'll get there. So they said to him, Lord, come. And so he said, where have you laid him? So where have you laid Lazarus, the dead man? They said, come, Lord, and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, come, see how, look how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying. So then Jesus, deeply moved again, again in the Greek it almost sounds like he's angry, came to the tomb. And so now we can kind of get what he's angry at. He's angry at this whole messed up world and what sin has done to his creation. Jesus is going to go rescue one of his lost sheep from the mouth of death, like David rescued a lamb from a lion. That's kind of what's going on here. So Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
And the man who had died, been dead for four days, came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And that's the point. They believed in him. And see, because they believed in him, they too would never die. That's the point of this text. That is, it's all about Christ, the resurrection and the life. But what Jared Ming has done here, he's going to start with teaching these youths from verse 11 of John 11, which means he's missing the whole setup of the story. He's already twisting it. We continue. So here we go. Let's all read it together. Over here on the screen, let's read it out loud. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus was dead. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Just close your eyes, okay? Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to speak and to wake us up. Wake up this generation to the... Wake us up. Do you mean raise us from the dead as far as, like, the death of sin? What are you talking about, Jared? The purpose of God in their lives. In Jesus' name. Amen? You can be seated. Let me ask you a question. How many of you here are heavy sleepers? All right, we got some heavy sleepers. And- heavy sleepers. Lazarus was dead. He wasn't snoring. He wasn't breathing. He wasn't going to wake up refreshed all on his own. He'd been dead for four days. Boom. You know, um, honestly, tonight we have two heavy sleepers. I'm going to talk about them. The first one is my brother who happens to be here tonight. Brian, back in the day, my younger brother, Brian, was a heavy sleeper. Let me ask you, how many of you have ever fallen asleep in class? All right. How many of you have ever fallen asleep during one of Pastor Mark's sermons? Okay. Oh, oh, just checking. All right. Well, hey, listen, one day my cousin was with me and we walked into the house and it was later at night. And um, um, he could tell that my brother Brian was asleep because the light was off and there was, you know, some uh, sound machine or something going. I don't remember exactly. And so as we walk in, we start talking. He's like, Shh, dude, you got to be quiet. You're going to wake up your brother. And I'm like, bro, you don't know my brother. My brother can sleep through a hurricane. He's like, no, dude, serious. I don't want to. I, want, I don't want your mom mad at me. You need to be quiet. I'm like, dude, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, bro, he he will not wake up. He's like, no, I'm serious. Don't mess, don't mess with me. My, come on, watch this. And so I literally take him with me. We walk into the room, flip on the light. He's like, dude, turn off the light, turn off the light. I'm like, dude, it's fine. Of course, Brian's over there. I said, now watch this. I'm like, wake up, Brian! Wake up! I, I, I literally do that. And he's like, dude, what are you doing? I'm like, look. So I'm like, dude, that's nothing. Watch this. I walk over to my brother. My cousin's standing there. He's like shaking his head like, you're stupid. What are you doing? I walk over and I take the bed and I start shaking the bed. And I go, wake up! 
Then this is what I do. I do. I said, we're taking it to the next level. He's like, be quiet. We're going to wake him up. I walk over and I grab my brother by the shoulders and I start shaking him like this. And I'm like, wake up, wake up, wake up. (laughs) Then finally we get to the finale of this story. And that is, I'm like, dude, that's nothing. Watch this. I walk over. I grab my brother. I sit him up in bed. He's sitting up. I grab the pillow behind him, pull it out. And I'm like, dude, watch this. Poof! I hit him across the face with the pillow. And you know what he does? And the guy's like, no way. I'm like, yes. He like high fives me. Like, this is crazy. He's like, this is crazy. And we go back over, turn off the light, go out. He never knew what happened. Because he just, for some reason, when he was in high school, or when he was, I think you were in high school at that time or in junior high, he just couldn't wake up. And the reason I tell the story is that I think that there's a generation that needs to wake up. And there may be some things that need to happen for them to wake up. And so what? Wake up in what sense? Like they're dead in trespasses and sins and need to be regenerated through the preaching of the gospel? Is that what you mean? I decided as I was praying and thinking about this night, I want to tell you something. I don't believe that I'm just here telling you some stories and reading you some scriptures. I'm telling you, I believe what I'm going to tell you tonight could potentially change your life and change this city forever and ever and ever. So I want to talk to you about... Change this city. I hope you preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Tell them that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and that anyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And that even though they die, yet will they live. I think, please tell me that's what you're going to do. Wake up. Somebody say, wake up. up. Come on, look at your neighbor and say, wake up. up. All right, you ready? So here we go. I'm going to tell you the story, the cliff notes. How many of you, when you had a, you had a, a book review or a test and you didn't read the book, you, you got the cliff notes? Come on. Why would you give the cliff notes during a sermon? You have plenty of time to read the entire story from the Gospel of John chapter 11. This is not a good sign. We've done it. Come on, wave at me. Come on, don't make... All right, we've all done it. All right. Tanner does it all the time. Just pointing it out. Tanner does it all the time. So here's the cliff notes. Lazarus has two sisters. One is older than him. Her name is Mary. She was probably seven to eight years older than him. And then her, his oldest sister, Martha, they all lived together and they were like Jesus, really good friends. Whenever Jesus was out doing ministry, he would end up coming back to their house and he would hang with them and Martha would make food and they would you know, do stuff together. And so Lazarus was considered a close friend of Jesus. But here's what, what happens. Jesus and his disciples go away. They're doing some ministry kind of a few days away. And Lazarus gets really sick. And when Lazarus gets sick, his sisters get worried about him. Like, he's gonna, if he doesn't get better, he's going to die. So they send someone to get Jesus. The guy shows up and says, hey, Jesus, disciples, listen, your friend Lazarus is sick. And then Jesus says, no, no, he's not sick. He's, he, he, he's just sleeping. And they go, we read it a moment ago. Well, if he's sleeping, then he needs to sleep. And then he basically goes on to say he, his sickness is going to get worse. Basically, he's going to die. And that's what happens. Lazarus dies. In fact, what's interesting is Jesus decides not to go back and pray for him on purpose. We're going to talk about that in a minute. 
He waits till the fourth day, and on the fourth day he comes back. By now, Lazarus is already dead. When he shows up, his sisters, Mary and Martha, are devastated. They're weeping. They're crying. They're like, Jesus, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And then he says this, where is he? And they said, he's at the tomb. He said, take me to the tomb. And so the story goes that he went to the tomb, and when he got to the tomb, he was weeping and he was crying for his friend. Because he saw how heartbroken their family was. And then he says this, he says, roll the stone away. And he yells out, basically, Lazarus, wake up. The words he actually chose were come forth, but Lazarus was asleep. And he says, I want you to wake up. I want you to come forth. And the Bible says that suddenly Lazarus gets up out of the tomb. He's wrapped up in these clothes and they unwrap him and, and Lazarus wakes up. What I want to do is I want to take that story and I want to give you four thoughts, four ideas. Because I think it, this story relates to everybody in this room. You're going to find yourself in one of the parts of this story. I believe God has a message for this generation and it's wake up. God has a message. Wake up. This generation needs to wake up. You better wake up. Lazarus was dead. He wasn't sleeping. The problem wasn't that, you know, the problem of the generation isn't that they're asleep. The problem of every generation is that they're born dead in trespasses and sins. Oh, boy, this is a mess. So here's my four points. Point number one. If you take a note, you can write this down. Point number one is simply this. You and I, this generation needs to wake up because it's time. Yeah, wake up. Because it's time. Why? Because you just twisted John chapter 11. That's the reason it's time. I want you to say that with me. Wake up because it's time. Can you say it with me? That was kind of weak. Everybody together. Wake up because it's time. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, there's another person in this room who used to have trouble waking up. And that was my youngest son, Tanner. I mean, Hudson. Hudson is here. He's, he's over there. And I got to tell you that it used to be, for some reason, Hudson just could not wake up. And so in the mornings, when it was time for school, we couldn't set an alarm. Because if we set an alarm, like everyone was waking up. Because it would just go, wah, 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 and just keep going. And literally, I would walk in sometimes, and I'd be like, Hudson, wake up. Nothing. Sometimes I'd go over and I'd shake the bed. Hudson, wake up. Kind of like my brother, I'd go over and I'd shake him, wake up. He'd just lay there asleep. So finally, I learned a trick that waked him, it would wake him up every time. I would go into the bathroom and get a cup of water. This is true, isn't it, son? And I would get a little bit of water, bring it back in, and just start to pour it on his face. And how many know immediately he, he woke up? He had a hard time waking up. But the point I want to make is that why do we need to wake up? Well, the reason we need to wake up is because we got to go to school. We have to go to work. In other words, we have to wake up because it's time to wake up. It's interesting in this story because it seems like God's timing was all off. Because here's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that Jesus arrived to go back to see Lazarus on the fourth day. And... He had died four days earlier. In fact, it's interesting that the Bible says he arrived on the fourth day. And here's why that's interesting. It's about timing. Because you see, in Jewish culture back in those days, when someone died, 
on the third day, a rabbi would come or a family member would come into the tomb and double check just to make sure they were really dead because the rabbis believed that after the third day that the spirit left the body. So by day four, they're really dead. Like D-E-A-D, you ain't breathing dead. So when Jesus arrived, he didn't arrive on day two. He didn't arrive on day three. He arrived on the day that it was impossible for Lazarus to wake up. And I got to tell you that sometimes we can be like in the story. The Bible says that when he did show up, here's what some of the people said. Some of the people that there that were there, here's what they said. They go, he healed a blind man. Couldn't he have healed him from this sickness? Why did he come so late? Didn't he care about Lazarus? You know what's interesting is Jesus literally came on this day on purpose. In fact, let me show you a verse real quick. It kind of explains it. John 11 says this, Lazarus' sickness, this is Jesus talking, will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of, of, of God will be re- receive glory from this. Now watch what it says. And although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. In other words, he stayed longer and got there late on purpose. Now, I got to tell you that maybe you're here tonight and you're saying, God, why are you not showing up? My parents said they're going to get a divorce. It looks like it's going to happen. God, where are you? How come you haven't shown up? Yeah, this story isn't about that either. Maybe you're here tonight and and you have frustrations because you're like, my parents, it's too late. It's never going to happen. My parents are never going to get back together again. Or maybe you're here and you're heartbroken and you're saying, I'll never find love. It's too late for me. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I'm never going to get into that school because I've already blown it with my grades. And so my dreams are shattered and I'm never going to follow the path that I wanted to follow. Or maybe you're here and you're saying things like this, like, "Um, I'm never going to get a good job because you know what? I'm not going to... Get the education I wanted and only people with a good education. And so sometimes in life, we begin to think that God is just, he, he's not paying attention to our needs and he shows up late. But what I want you to know is that with God, it's never too late. With God, it's never too late. God showed up on the fourth day on purpose. The Bible says that my ways are higher than your ways. He says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And the one thing I want you to know is that in this story, his timing was perfect because he showed up in the moment when it was impossible. But here's the good news. The things that are impossible with man are possible with God? No, the good news is that Christ has bled and died for our sins and rose again on the third day. Mm-hmm. This is, I, I, don't, I don't know what he's doing with this text. I mean, you have this wonderful thing about, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm sure he'll get to that. We continue. If you're here right now and you feel like God has forgotten you, if you're here and you feel like it's too late for things to turn around for you, here's what you need to hear. Wake up because it's time. You may wake up because it's time. Yeah, that's not even one of the things that Jesus actually said in this account from the Gospel of John. 
like it's on the fourth day. You may feel like that it's never going to happen, but hear me today. Hear this message. Wake up because it's time. Today is the fourth day. Today could be the fourth day in your life and in your dreams and in your family and in your future. It's the fourth day in my dreams. Jesus is going to show up and raise my dreams from the dead. This is a mess. Here's the second thing I want to point out. Not only did he need to wake up because it's time, but here's the second thing. He needed to wake up because things needed to be exposed. This generation... Things needed to be exposed. What did they expose of Lazarus? This doesn't make any sense. It's to wake up because there are things that need to be exposed. Can I show you the next part of the story? Here's what the scripture says. Jesus, he goes out to the tomb. And Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. And here's what Jesus says. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha says, the the dead man's sister, she protested and she said, Lord, he's been dead four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus says, open up the tomb, roll the stone away, expose what's inside. And what did she say? No, no, no. You don't want to do that because it stinks. He smells. You don't, you don't like, you're not going to like. You just added the word expose what's inside. You added that to the text. It's not there. See, when you get in there. In fact, I love one translation that says this. Don't roll away the stone for he stinketh. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever said that about your sibling? He stinketh. Come on. I mean, no, doing a little junior high humor now. Come on. How many know what I'm talking about? Sometimes your sibling can stinketh. Come on. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Just, just checking, making sure you're awake tonight. You know, when I read that part of the story, it made me think of a story. Our, um, our garage, um, Kind of has this opening area, and sometimes animals would get in, and so much you know, stuff like that. We've had spiders, and had a snake in there, and had different things like that. We had rats in there, or, or mice in there. Well, one time in our pantry, it started to smell. And um, how many know that you don't want to go into the place where you're going to get your food, and it smell? Come on, how many know what I'm talking about? You know, you want to stay away from that. But come on, here's the deal: all the good stuff is in there. And it just got worse and it got worse and it got worse until it was just so bad. And that's like something is dead in there. It is gross in there. And so here's what we had to do. We literally had to start pulling all of the stuff out of the pantry. And as we did, we discovered that a dead mouse. I know it's disgusting, huh? Was back in the back of our pantry. And I got to tell you something. It didn't matter if we sprayed Febreze. It didn't matter what we did. It continued to smell until we exposed the problem and removed it. And I want to tell you that I I have never heard the smell, the odor of the corpse of Lazarus being, uh, well, an action step. You know, an application step in a sermon before. This is a first for me, and I listen to a lot of sermons. This story is simply saying this. God wants you to reveal it so he can heal it. In other words... 
What? Okay. I mean, technically, we can talk about maybe like First John chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We could talk about something like that, right? Let me say it this way. God won't heal or can't heal what you're unwilling to reveal. And I think one of the things that God is saying to this generation is not only, hey, it's time. It's time. God has a plan for you. It's not too late for you. But secondly, God has a plan for you. No, this is about believing in Jesus so that we can live rather than die. So that we won't perish but have eternal life. Good grief. This guy doesn't know what the gospel is. At least I'm not convinced he does at this point. He's saying, listen, you need to roll the stone away. There's some things that are deep in your life that you've been hiding. There's some things that you've allowed to... There's... What? This doesn't make any sense. Not from this text. Stay there and you think that it's going to go away, but it's not going to go away until you expose it to the light. Because when you expose it to the light, light overcomes darkness. It's time for this generation to roll away the stone and expose it. Because if you reveal it, God can heal it. Come on. Amen. So let me ask you, what is in the tomb of your heart? Maybe... Oh, this is so bad. What smells? What do you find yourself whenever the topic comes up in circles or small groups? You find yourself don't want to talk about it because, no, 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 you don't want to go there. It stinketh. No, 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 you don't want to go there. Maybe it's a fear. Maybe it's a sin. Maybe it's an addiction. Can I tell you something? God's saying, wake up. It's time to expose some things. Because then we go to the next part. Because he said, wake up, it's time. Wake up to expose it. And then here's the third idea. And that is this, that we need to wake up because you need to get untangled. Wake up because you... Wake up because you need to get untangled. This is a historical narrative about Jesus actually raising somebody from the dead. And you're turning it into some weird allegory. Oh, man. Need to get untangled. So watch what happens in the story. He shows up on the certain day, and then he says, roll away the stone. And then in John chapter 11, verse 43, then Jesus shouted to Lazarus, wake up, come out. And the dead man came out, but when he came out, his hands and his feet were bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a head cloth. And then Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. You see, it's one thing to expose it. Sometimes you don't just need to expose it. You need to get untangled. You need to let God unwrap. Unwrap. Colin, would you help me with something? Could you come on up here? Come on. Wouldn't that require God to raise me from the dead? I don't know anybody who comes out of the grave on their own steam, you know? Give it up for Colin. He's gonna... With the exception of Jesus. I volunteer. You got it? Yep. Okay, so sweet. All right. So here's kind of the way it worked. You'll just kind of face the crowd there. So he's going to wrap up the volunteer in bandages. Oh, my word. 
These kids are not hearing anything, even remotely approaching a right handling of this text. And uh, could you hold that right there? Just hold that there. Okay, so basically, Lazarus is all wrapped up. I'm getting dizzy. He was all wrapped up. The wrappings went around him. I'm running out of wrappings here. So I'm going to cheat and do a short one. So you got one there. And then it says that not only was his arms and feet all wrapped up, but his face was wrapped up. Now, to begin to think about it, I began to ask the Lord, God, when we, we see the story, what did the, the grave clothes represent? You having a hard time breathing there, buddy? No. The grave clothes didn't represent anything. It's a historical narrative. They were grave clothes because Lazarus died. They actually wrapped his corpse up in those. They didn't represent anything. Notice what Jared just said. I just I asked the Lord, what do the grave clothes represent? So apparently we're going to get God speaking directly to Jared Ming and giving him an uh, an inspired interpretation of as to the symbolic significance of Lazarus's grave clothes. Please tell me that's not what's going to happen. Please. Okay, he's fine. All right. You know what happens? I think the first thing that God's saying, wake up and get unwrapped, get untangled with, is addiction. What? We live in a culture that is getting more and more addicted to more and more things. It could be self-harm. It could be porn. You name it. It could be drugs. A culture that is prone to addiction. And you know what happens when you're addicted? You're limited. You can't walk. You can't move. You can't reach. So the grave clothes are addictions. No, they are not. You can't have vision. You can't move forward because you're always captivated by what you're tangled in. The second thing that, 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 that was wrapped up was not just his hands and his feet, which made him immobile to move forward. And I want to stop and say, it's time for you to, to quit being immobile. God wants you to be able to move forward into the things that he has. Yeah, quit being immobile. You know, I'm sure that's what, you know, why didn't somebody tell that to Lazarus on day two? After he died. Why? you got to stop being immobile, Lazarus. For you. But secondly, it was wrapped around his face. And I began to ask the Lord, Lord, why? Why was? what does the wrapping say? Now, I'm just telling you what the Holy Spirit was saying to me. But you know what's interesting? So the Holy Spirit gave him this interpretation of John 11. That's, he's claiming inspiration from the Holy Spirit for this thing he's going to say next about the wrappings is with this type of wrapping and grave cloth, you can still see. Can, can, can you see out there? Kind of? Like barely. barely. Because here's what happens. When you get wrapped up, here's what happens. It, it not only affects your mobility, it affects your perception. Utterly absurd. The whole point is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and anyone who believes in him, even though he die, will live and now everything that happens in life is filtered through what you see. So what happens is we have people now that start saying things like, well, I'm the victim. It always happens to me. 
Things happen in our life. Well, that's just how I am. Or we hear things maybe from our parents that say, you're never going to amount to anything. So we start to believe it and we start to see it. And our whole life now is lived out with the perspective that we're wrapped up in that says, I can't do it. I'll never be free. I'm always going to struggle. This is always going to be an issue. Hey, this is the world we live in. That's just the way everybody is. And this is, he claims, an inspired interpretation of the meaning of the face portion of the grave clothes. Utter nonsense. Everybody does it, so I might as well do it too. I'm going to tell you something. That's not God's plan for you. You know what God said? He said, wake up, Colin. And he said, not only are you going to wake up, not only are we going to reveal some things that are going on, but I'm going to unwrap you. And I'm going to set you free. Because you don't need to see that way anymore. You don't need to believe that way anymore. You don't need to stay in that place anymore. It's time for you to be free. Come on, give it up for Colin. Good job, buddy. You know what's interesting? It was after he woke up that God set him free. He didn't wake up. He rose from the grave. He wasn't merely sleeping. He didn't get set free first. It was after he woke up that God had set him free. In fact, let me say it this way. There are some things you will only be freed from when you wake up. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. What are you doing to this? Too much of our culture is still looking through the, the filter of what the enemy has wrapped them in. That's why they stand up. And I'm all for things like Alcoholicus Anonymous and things like that. But they stand up and they say things like this. Hi, my name is Jared and I'm an alcoholic. Or they stand up and they say things like, hi, my name is Jared and I'm addicted to porn. Or hi, my name is Jared and I struggle with drug addiction. Now, I think it's good that they're being transparent. I think it's good that they're identifying the problem. But I want to tell you with God, you don't have to see that way. You don't have to think that anyway. Because what you can say is, hi, my name is Jared and Jesus set me free. I used to struggle with alcohol. But him who the sun sets free is free indeed. I'm telling you, God wants you to wake up. No repentance. No forgiveness of sins. Nope, and this isn't even Christian sanctification. This, I, this, oh man, I don't know what this is. Commanding dead people to get out of the grave. Would you please just wake up? It's up to you. And then after you wake up, then Jesus will set you free. Unbelievable. And to unravel some things in your life. Wake up because it's time. Today is the day. Today is the fourth day. Today, everything can start to change. Wake up and have the courage to expose some of the things that are in your lives that are, that are creating such pain. Thirdly, wake up because God wants to untangle you and set you free. Can I give you the last point? You need to wake up because someone needs you. You need to wake up because someone needs you. Now, I want to start and explain this passage a little bit to you. As I was doing some study, here's what I discovered. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, it appears none of them were married. 
They all were family and they came from a wealthy home. So they had wealth and they had a huge house. And it was very um, uncommon for people to be their age and not be married. So they're obviously close. Um, They hadn't found the right person. God maybe saved them so that they could do ministry and follow Jesus, all of these things. But here's what's interesting is Lazarus was kind of the age of what a junior higher would be in this room. Martha was probably about the age of what a high school student would be in this room. And I'm sorry, Mary and Martha was the age of what a young adult college age person would be in this room. So you had all three. And what I found interesting is, do you realize that Lazarus would have never woke up if Martha and Mary hadn't believed for them, hadn't cried out for him, hadn't gone to Jesus for him? This is horrible. Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the audience. Uh, trying to inspire them to make decisions of one kind or another. Not sure what the decision is at this point. We'll keep listening. Stop and tell you, I want to say something to all the young adults. Sometimes you come to a gathering like this, and maybe you see kids that are younger, and you're thinking, ah, you know, they're little kids. What am I messing around with? Listen, I want to encourage you. Maybe God is trying to wake you up to realize that somebody needs you. Somebody needs you to pray. Notice, still, we have not heard Jared Ming actually read out that very important portion of John 11, uh, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Nope, no effort at all to even read that. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And yet he claims that he has a Holy Spirit-inspired interpretation of this passage and the, the symbolic meaning of the grave clothes and stuff. He is totally cut out of this text, the entire point of the text, and that is trust and belief in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Somebody needs you to go to Jesus. There's some young kids that are in junior high that aren't, don't even know how to handle the pressures they're experiencing. And they don't need a parent necessarily that can help them. They need a Martha. They need someone from the next generation that says, I'm going to worship in front of them. I'm going to listen and I'm going to pray in front of them. I'm going to come and I'm going to, I'm going to begin to invite people to church. I'm going to demonstrate what it means. That's why we brought it all together. Because Lazarus needed Martha. And not only that, guess what? Martha needed Mary. Because Martha was all caught up. And hear what she was caught up in. Remember the story? She had Jesus at her house. Mary sat at Jesus' feet and was listening to him teach. And Martha was all stressed out because she was doing all the work by herself. So she comes into Jesus. She's like, Jesus, you need to tell Mary to help me. I'm doing this all by myself. And then Jesus looks at her and says, Mary, I mean, Martha, you're worried and distressed about all kinds of stuff. You need to let that go. Mary's found something good here. I'm not going to take it away. Martha needed Mary. Maybe you're a young adult. Maybe you need a high schooler in your life, some level, to help you realize that maybe you don't need to be stressed out about the job and about the career and about getting everything right and taking that class and getting... Sad thing is, he's teaching these kids how to twist Scripture, and rather than teaching them the truth about Christ, he is literally teaching them how to blaspheme mm-hmm. by demonstrating it himself. That's what he's doing. 
in that school. Maybe instead, you need to learn something because I'm going to tell you, Mary needed Martha, Martha needed Lazarus, Lazarus needed Martha. They all needed each other. I'm going to tell you, God wants to wake us up to realize somebody needs us. There's a story. I'll tell this story and then I'm going to read a verse and we're going to end. There was a man who went to this flea market and when he got to the flea market, there was this particular vendor and he had pigeons. And the pigeons were tied to a a stake or a pole. There was a string that went from the stake to their little leg and these pigeons just walked around in circles around the pole. Hour after hour after hour after hour. Finally, a guy comes up to the vendor and he says, Hey, I'd like to buy your pigeons. He says, Sure. What's the price? They, they made the agreement. He paid the price. And as soon as he paid the price for the pigeons, he walks over, gets a pair of scissors, and he cuts the strings of all of the pigeons connected to the pole. The, the guy who owned them was amazed. He's like, what are you doing? He said, Oh, I just I bought them because I want to set them free. But then they both stared in amazement because the pigeons just kept walking around in a circle. And the pigeons never flew off until the man finally came and ran into the middle of the pigeons and started going, shoo, shoo, and got them all crazy. And they flew off and they found their freedom. I'm going to pause that story and I want to read a verse to you. The Bible says in the book of John, that after Lazarus had been raised from the dead, that Jesus was going into a certain area. And when he got there, this massive crowd appeared. And here's why. When all the people heard of Jesus and that he had arrived, they flocked to see him. And also they came to see who? See who? Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too. For it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. You realize that there are people that may never see Jesus if you don't wake up. You better wake up, man. Lazarus was called from the grave by Jesus. Lazarus did not wake himself up. Oh, this is so bad. They wanted to see Lazarus. They wanted to see the testimony of the guy that got unraveled. They wanted to see the testimony of the guy that rolled the stone away. They wanted to see the story of the man who was dead, but now he was alive. And because he went, and because he was a a part of that story, people came. And I'll tell you that God wants to use you. Somebody needs you. There's a student on your campus. There's someone on your job. That needs you. They need to hear your story. They need you to wake up. And what we're doing is we're simply saying these wake nights is we're running into the pigeons and we're stirring up the pigeons because we're saying you can be free. You don't have to walk around that that pole any longer. You don't have to live the way you've lived any longer. God has. You don't have to be a pole pigeon any longer. You can fly away now, man. Just wake up. Uh, This is so painful. Or for you, you can be free. And you need to be free because somebody needs you. I want you to close your eyes. Done.
Yeah, he like totally forgot about, you know, Jesus, the resurrection and the life and anyone who believes in him and all that kind of stuff. And instead, you know, literally turned the resurrection of Lazarus into a call, an action call, an, a, you know, an application step for you to wake up. Would you wake up already? It, <laughs> oh, my goodness. That was awful. And as a result of this, uh, these people, these kids were not called to repent not called to trust in Christ, the forgiveness of their sins. And uh, if they were unbelievers, they remained dead in trespasses and sins. And they heard nothing, really nothing, for real, right, about Jesus. What a mess. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>